0: Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Jamie Mo Crazy. Jamie is a former professional skier who competed in both slope style and the half pipe at the X Games. She was the first woman to land a double backflip during the X Games. In 2015, a horrific accident during a competition landed her in a coma and half paralyzed. Jamie's inspiring story is one of perseverance in finding what she calls an alternative peak. Jamie, thanks for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: So take us back to little Jamie. Where did you grow up and how did you get into skiing?
1: I grew up in Connecticut, actually. And I got into skiing because it's a lineage. It comes down through my family. My grandmother was actually World Cup downhill champion. Back in the day, she lived in Sun Valley and was in some of the first Warren Miller ski movies. She she's kind of a pioneer for that. And her brother, my great uncle, actually went to the Olympics in skiing twice. And my <laughs> great grandmother, she actually made the first ever U.S. team outfits, <laughs> which is kind of funny. So skiing was always part of my family. So I started skiing when I was one year old. Obviously before I can remember as soon as I could stand and balance I was skiing and as my mom said when you take babies skiing this is a good piece of advice for anyone who's trying to take their baby skiing it is not a full day Type of activity. You take your baby for an hour maximum on like the magic carpet, the beginner slopes, and it's a form of playing with your baby outdoors. You give them snacks every single time they go up the little magic carpet, which is not very far. Give them a snack at the top, like have them have fun and enjoy it. And you're not teaching them to be superstars when they're a year old. You're just having fun with your kids outdoors. And then that fosters a love for the environment and for the sport because it is beyond a sport like soccer. It's like a lifetime pursuit. You start skiing and then you might have like, like I did a career out of it and all that kind of stuff and competing or filming, doing it professionally. But then, you know, I'm going to go skiing and snowboarding with my kids and just stay in the mountain environment for my whole life. And when you're 90 years old, you're not competing. You're just doing it for fun.
0: Yeah. What great advice. I think so many people, probably myself included, had visions of going out there and having a full day on the mountain skiing or snowboarding with their kids. But uh, great advice for sure. Just enjoying that environment and making it a fun activity outdoors.
1: One of the challenging things. My mom's actually a, a ski instructor at Park City, and the the parents. If you're here for a trip, like if, if you come for a vacation, you want to go out for the whole day. So then you want your kids to be out for the whole day, and most of the time, the younger kids don't want to be out for the whole, the whole day. So it makes it, it makes it a challenging dynamic. But if you live in a ski town or even if you're visiting i would even if you're on vacation i would recommend having a nanny watch your kids for half the day and then do like an afternoon session or something like that it will foster the love stronger
0: yeah clearly so you you grew up in a ski family with your your mom and your sister also is a competitive skier as well as your grandma being a, a decorated female skier as well as how did you progress from just being a casual skier on the mountain starting at one years old to actually getting into competition?
1: Well, so I was just skiing with my family as, as a child. But then by the time I was six, I was in a Mighty Mites program, which is like little kids who rip the mountain. And we started having some races and doing some freestyle events. And so I just, by the time I was nine years old, I was a J5 ski racer. So I was going to competitions in ski racing. And I just loved it. And I loved competing. I'm a very competitive person. (laughs) And so I just loved pushing myself and competing. And I was pretty good at it right away. So I always would push myself to compete. So basically, my whole childhood, I just immediately started competing. When I was nine years old, I actually won state championships in gymnastics and the same year i won state championships in skiing ski racing and i said my dream was to do gymnastics on snow and at the time there wasn't really an x games and girls couldn't compete in x games when it originally started and so it took it took some time for slope style skiing which is multiple jumps and rails and you're judging your overall overall impression but for that to exist and when I realized it did I was 16 and I was like oh this is like gymnastics on snow and I started competing in my career that that developed into my professional career really fast but yeah whack when I was nine I wanted to do gymnastics on snow because I was a great ski racer and I was a great gymnast.
0: Yeah. What an interesting intersection. I was actually going to ask you, how did the gymnastics help you out in skiing? But, but really, how did you handle training for two really competitive sports? I mean, those are two that I think of growing up in Northern California near Lake Tahoe. If people were competitive skiers, like the Johnny Moses that I grew up with, or if they were gymnastics, that was their sport. They weren't doing other sports. So how did you balance the training for two, I would say probably very different sports?
1: I just, I loved training and I loved being active. So I was always a bundle of energy. So that definitely helped with it. My gymnastics coach, she didn't really like it that I was going skiing all the time. And she had a talk with my mom and she was like, can she actually make it in this sport? Because she could make it in gymnastics. And my mom said, yes. And so by the time I was 12, I had to stop competing in gymnastics because you can't continue competing progressing past like level 7 um in gymnastics when you're doing other sports so they they do kind of close it off but like i said i was just as a child i would go to gymnastics like 4 days a week and i would go to ski training like five days a week and so there'd be days when I would go ski like I'd do my schoolwork, I'd do school work in the morning from like 8 to 12 and then I'd go skiing from like 12 to 2 and then I'd go to gymnastics from like 3 30 to 5 30 and then I'd come home and have dinner and go to bed <laughs> and I loved it
0: what a busy schedule for sure
1: yeah, and something that helped with that schedule was the fact that I was homeschooled my entire life. And so that allowed us the flexibility. So my mom has a master's in childhood education. And so she does have some training. And back when I was homeschooled, now in Park City, half the kids do some sort of online school or alternative education pro- program. It's, it's very popular out here. But when I was doing it, it wasn't that popular. And most, there there was like two groups of homeschool kids. There was the one group that their parents didn't want them to have anything to do with society. And they were kind of like removed from society, homeschooled to like do strict religious ideas or because they were macrobiotic vegans and they didn't want anything to do with the regular food. And and anyways, kind of like extreme type things. Or there was some that were doing it So they could pursue other activities and sports, but it was a smaller group of us. And my mom was never anti-society. She never wanted to pull me out. I was always doing so many activities and had so many friends. I had a lot of friends my whole life. So I was very involved in things. It just allowed us to do concentrated. Because if you do concentrated four hours of work as an eight-year-old, that's plenty (laughs) for the day you can get a lot of things done. You can do your math. You can do your reading. I went to college. I graduated from college. I got good, good grades in college. So I learned, I learned things. I learned a lot of things as a child. But for us, homeschooling allowed us to have it be structured education and then do a lot of activities and sports.
0: I think I read your mom talks about the the Mo Crazy method. So tell me how that was, how she used that to develop you and your sister, both academically, but as skiers as well.
1: Yeah, I'd love to, because the Mo Crazy method started when we were kids. So one of the things with the Mo Crazy method is to set attainable goals to reach growth goals. And you can do that with lots of different things, but it started when we were kids. Like we would have focused, attainable goals and structure. So like we would do this lesson of math or this lesson of world history and have it be, be focused. And then that would allow us to have the privilege of being able to go skiing or go to gymnastics. Cause I always thought of those as kind of privileges for me to be able to do, but it just was all about structuring because a lot of people, it's interesting. They spend Their whole childhood just going to school. You know, you arrive at eight to nine in the morning and then you're there until like three to four to five in the afternoon and everything's like structured and laid out for you. And then if you want to do something as an adult where you're an entrepreneur and you want to start things or set things up, you have to structure your own life. And that was a big portion of how we were raised with the Mo Crazy Method is like, We had the opportunity to structure our lives how we wanted to. However, we had to deliver the end results that were expected. So, if we wanted to one day go for a hike and at the top of the mountain get our work done, and so do our work at the top of the mountain, um, and then and then come down, we could do that. However, at the end of every week, we had a certain amount of work that we had to get done, and like I had to read a biography book. And I, I could have a fiction book if I wanted to, um, but I had to read a biography book. I had to read a science book. So I, I had these things that I had to do. And the Mo crazy method does a lot of teaching how to get done the end result of what you want to get done while you are creating it. Cause that's a challenge.
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. I mean, just what you talked about in terms of giving someone a goal and giving them that that leeway to figure out just how to schedule it to achieve that goal, or just how to get there. I think that creates so much independence and freedom and creativity is going to be so important in people's later lives, whether they're a professional skier, or a speaker, or a, you know, just working in the workforce in general.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So, how did it evolve? So, talk to me about your ski career. Obviously, you made a decision at some point to turn professional, or maybe it was just a little evolution. Like, what was that path like for you in terms of just starting as a six-year-old, mighty might? And then evolving into a professional skier.
1: Yeah. Well, that path actually had a big turn because when I was 16, I actually, I just did all this talking about homeschooling, but I went to a private school for my first year in high school and I actually got really great grades and I got six excellent efforts and there's only me and one other kid in in the school who did, (laughs) which is kind of cool. But when I was at that school, I was a ski racer. And there was a professional filmer, slope style skier boy who was a senior, and I was a freshman. And he was like, "Jamie, you'd love it." He kept trying to convince me to do the trampolines, like for freestyle, and and try the water ramps out, which is where you ski down plastic and you flip into a pool, and so you can learn tricks and stuff. And so finally, he convinced me to give it a shot, and um, I went to the trampoline camp. And I loved it. And since I had been a gymnast, I I could just, you change the access, the rotation a little bit for freestyle tricks, but I was learning so much so fast and I just loved it. And then when I was there, I actually won a free water amp camp in like the raffle type thing. And the head of the program actually said he kind of rigged the competition. So I would win that because I paid for myself to go to the trampoline camp and at this time my parents especially my dad were not really supportive of me all of a sudden making a career shift because i was doing for ski racing that summer i had gone to chile to do an international race and so it was like pretty good like it it seemed like it was going pretty well Um, and then just starting freestyle was like what are you doing so I went but I gotta I got to go for free to the water amps. And then when I was there, my first day I learned how to do a front flip. And my third day I learned how to do a back flip into the water amps. And then my fifth day I actually was recruited to join the US aerial team. Because the coach came and he watched my trampoline work. He saw he just was very interested. So I stayed living at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York. And I was like, okay, bye school. (laughs) And so I just stayed living there. And then my first aerial competition was in Canada, and it was a NORAM, so North American competition. And when I flew to Canada, I had actually never done a front flip or a back flip on snow. And I was going to a North American competition, Uh, like a norm competition. And I arrived and I learned how to do front flips and back flips and made it through the competition and held my own for us. And uh, then I was hooked and they just started taking off. But so it was, it just transitioned very quickly. I'd been skiing my whole life and doing gymnastics. And then I, I switched and then I got really, I lived in like placid and then I also like for the fall. And so I learned, all that on the water amps, and then as soon as I started doing it that first winter, I went to Junior Olympics and I got second in aerials and second in slope style. And then the next year at Junior Olympics, I won the overall, I won slope style, I won aerials, and got third and half pipe. And made it to Junior Olympics in New Zealand and got my first X Games invite. So it was all within a couple of years, really fast when I made that transition to pursue this freestyle career.
0: That's really interesting. Actually, something I love to just uh, zero in on is that I, doing something for the first time, whether it's in business or in life, is always so scary. Take me through that experience of being able to do a, a flip, a backflip into a pool. And then you mentioned in competition, doing it on snow for the first time without a safety net. Well, what was it like? How did you get your mindset ready to do something like that for the first time?
1: Yeah. Well, for me, when I was for the backflip, I did so much preparation for it. So on the trampolines, I'd been able to do backflips for over a decade at that time since I was uh, like eight years old. So that was like very natural, the flip on the trampolines. And then I would do it on the water ramp. So going into the plastic, so the pool. So I just had the confidence that I had done the repetition and built the habit to be able to succeed in that. And then actually, I also was the first woman in the world to compete a double backflip at the 2013 X Games. And for that, that was actually even more challenging to do the first because no, women, no woman had ever done it. And so there was a lot of people who were like, women can't do that. It's just not, not going to happen. And it's interesting now because at this, this day, like the Olympics are coming up soon after we filmed this. So right around when it's going to be released probably, or maybe you've already seen the Olympics, every girl who's going to be podium contention in a slopestyle run are doing multiple double flips Much harder than a double backflip off axis. I've done the water amps. I've done it on the trampoline. I know I can do it. I've even done it on snow before X Games. So... The person who's really holding me back, who's getting in my way is myself because I set the trick too hard, which is why I over-rotated it. And we do that all the time. We do the preparation, we do the training, we get ready, and then we stand in our own ways in lots of things in business. And the real challenge is just letting go and stepping back and taking some deep breaths and letting yourself perform and execute what you are capable of doing without you getting in your own way.
0: I love that and just... The importance of, I love the examples of business as well as doing a double backflip for the first time is you've done the preparation, you're ready. Don't let yourself get in the way. Do that that deep breathing, that meditation, whatever it may be to actually allow you to perform and, and let that training, let your skill, just let it shine.
1: And that's something I have to remind myself in business all the time now, because um, we're doing a lot of background work for Mo Crazy Strong, our nonprofit, and we can get to that. But... I quite often have to remind myself, and sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed and stressed about things, my fiance actually he will say, Oh, a really good motivational speaker i I heard uh, was talking about looking at the view, looking at the view of your current life and and that's things that I talk talk about or like he'll be like setting attainable goals. it looks like you're accomplishing your attainable goals, so don't stay so focused on your growth goals. isn't that what she says? and I'm always like, uh, yeah. But it actually works really well because a lot of the things that I I do say and I do strongly believe in, we have to remind ourselves. And that's with anything. I believe anyone who's anything to do with motivation, no matter what you, you share out. And even if you fully believe it, you have to remind yourself. Just keep reminding yourself about those principles.
0: So, Jamie, take me back to 2015 in the World Tour Finals in Whistler, Canada.
1: Yeah, so I was actually competing at in slopestyle and halfpipe, and that competition was actually the first World Tour Finals. My little sister Jeannie, who still competes in halfpipe, but it was the first time she had made it to compete in halfpipe, and so she was up there with me, and we were so excited to be at the competition together and traveling together. And so for the slope style day, she was just watching. So she was at the top of the course and she gave me a hug as I dropped in for my second run. My first run, I actually finished in fourth place. Like I mentioned about being competitive, fourth place is not on the podium and no one remembers the fourth place finisher. So I wanted to upgrade and get on the podium. So I upgraded my off-axis backflip to an off-axis double backflip in the run. So for my second run, I gave my little sister a hug. I dropped in for my run. She saw my takeoff. She couldn't see the landing because of the mountain. But then she saw I didn't hit the next jump. She thought maybe I under-rotated slightly, but she didn't think too much of it. And then she heard the radio, the ski patrol radio, crackle to life saying, we need all hands on deck and the helicopter on standby. And then... she she, without a word just put her skis on and skied down and she saw me and I was convulsing and I was spewing blood and my eyes were rolled back in my head and that's a memory that will stick with her for the rest of her life and so then I had to get airlifted from that spot in the mountain to Whistler and Jeannie had to figure out I was at the world ski and snowboard festival, so they were very supportive of everything. And so someone was driving her, but she had to go to the care in Whistler. And all of a sudden she went from being my little sister to having to figure out about the, how to pay for the flights. And she didn't have $5,000. And it was like almost $5,000 that I already had cost. and. She had to figure out how to talk to the parents and figure it all out. And then she had to drive down to the hospital because I was airlifted from Whistler to Vancouver General Hospital immediately because it was way too critical. And when I was airlifted to Vancouver General Hospital, they actually wrote my fatality report. So during this whole car ride, she just was waiting for the doctors to call and say that I had passed away. and. The doctor actually did call to talk to my mom and and wanted to share information. And Jeannie was sure that the information was that I was dead and um, that didn't happen. So she arrived at the hospital and I was still there. And I I hadn't passed away. I was still alive. And they actually inserted an oxygen and pressure analyzing brain bolt into my head. And I became the first patient in North America to receive that procedure that they had learned about in Cambridge, England. And so that was a decision that my family had to make right away. And all the rest of my family was flying in. So Jeannie was the only one who was there. Immediately. And then the rest of my family was flying in from different areas of the US. And my mom was actually looking at schools with my youngest sibling and didn't have, neither of them had their passports with them. So they were in Connecticut visiting my dad when they heard what had happened to me. And so my dad just took a direct flight to Vancouver. But they couldn't fly to Vancouver because they didn't have passports. So they flew to L.A. And then actually we had somebody fly from Park City to L.A. and bring the passports. And so they could just go from L.A. to Vancouver because it would have taken like an extra full day to get all the way back to Park City and then keep traveling. Um, and then my older, one of my older sisters was living in Ashland, Oregon at the time. And, and yet my other older sister is a doctor and she was a doctor in New York and she was going to her, she, she was just being a doctor and she just realized that she needed to go to Vancouver to be with her little sister. So she just walked out and left and she got it covered. So it was all good, but she, so she just flew. So my whole immediate family was flying and my parents were actually told to come to say goodbye because the expectations were so low for my
0: recovery. I can't even imagine how stressful that would be. You're trying to get to your daughter who's in need and you just can't even can't even get there and be there with you. That's I mean, that's I can't imagine going through something like that. You know, you talk about your your peaks in life and lows and and finding an alternative peak and what a high you are at. You're trying to figure out how to go from fourth on the podium to first. So you pushed it a bit, trying to do that double backflip off axis. Now you suddenly find yourself in a hospital bed trying to do the most basic of tasks. Like what was that like to come out of that coma and just to start, to start over again, if you will, and figure out what that, that new path for yourself was?
1: Well, it's interesting because when I came out of the coma, I still had severe amnesia. So when I was starting to wake up, it wasn't like, it's quite often recovering from a coma portrayed in movies that they just wake up and they're fully there. But for me, that didn't happen at all. So when I was out of the, I was in the coma for 10 days. And when I was out of the coma, I still couldn't remember day to day. I still couldn't articulate words. I I could mumble. It was still a a very, very far away path. And so it took six weeks for me to remember anything. So even now, looking back at that portion of my life, I don't remember it. I, I don't, like no memory from the day of the accident. Two six weeks after. And then after my memory started to come back, it was very sporadic. So I just have very, 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 very small, vague memories for some months after. So I was in the hospital for a period of time, like two and a half months. And then I went left and I did outpatient therapy and I did it five days a week in Salt Lake City. And that was actually something fortunate because my mom and I are now board members of the Utah Brain Injury Council, which works with Utah Health with protocols and decisions for the workforce, trauma centers, everything surrounding traumatic brain injuries. And I didn't actually know this existed until we were having a talk with the board um, about like, restructuring for next, next year, like at the pro- like restructuring the board. And one of the things we have is a TBI fund in the state of Utah. And one of their protocols is to help brain injuries, TBI survivors who need more care in the immediacy than their insurance will cover. And when we were talking about this, mom's like, Oh yeah. Like I remember when Jamie in Jamie's case, like, They said, oh, we can have her do five days a week if you sign here. And so I signed there and she didn't really know that much about it, just that I was going to get to go outpatient therapy five days a week. And now we know that I actually was a recipient of the TBI fund because my insurance would cover once a week and they covered the rest of the time. My occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and the outpatient and how quick that was allowed me to progress because it was impactful and I needed all that therapy at that time. So that was amazing. And we just found out that so every car that's registered in the state of Utah, $1 of the registration fee goes to the TBI fund. And the TBI fund can help people like me and give us more outpatient therapy treatments. And that's just such a cool, cool thing to have because I definitely needed to go five days a week until I graduated from that portion. And I, I first graduated from physical therapy my return my returning to movement was the easiest part of the whole recovery and it was the most visible part everyone who was watching me you would be able to see when i went from being in a wheelchair to i went to walk or i went to run a little bit, or I could do a jump, you you, you could see all that visible progress. And for me, having been an athlete my entire life, I understood how to push my body to accomplish things it didn't know how to do, and to set little attainable goals to reach the growth goals. An example of that when I was in the hospital is I immediately wanted to go back to skiing. Like As soon as my memory came back, I wanted to go back to skiing. And at that time, I couldn't walk upstairs by myself. So it was a pretty big gap. So my attainable goals was not to think about going back to skiing, but to think about walking up the stairs. So every day I would walk a little bit farther and I'd walk a little bit faster. And I started out walking with people holding a gate belt, which is like a human's leash and like supporting me. I, I couldn't do it by myself. And then by the time I left the hospital, I could run up 12 flights of stairs in three minutes and 26 seconds. By myself. And I know that because I started timing myself as well. But like those are little attainable goals. So those are goals that you can set. And as soon as I started setting the goals about walking up the stairs, I was walking up the stairs. So even though at the beginning it was walking up with the stairs with three people supporting me and like hardly able to lift my leg. If I kept practicing that day by day, I knew from my upbringing and my experience in life, if you keep practicing that, that's how you reach your growth goals. And that's how you create progress is just by setting these little goals that you don't really see much difference day to day happening, but you keep the consistency of doing them and you just keep going. Then you make the big changes that people can see. So physically was actually very understandable recovering. The cognition took way longer. It took like five years for inside my mind, my, my brain to like recover and be able to articulate and think through things rationally and stuff like that. Um, and I always thought I was farther along than I actually truly was. So that was a big challenge. And then emotionally was the hardest. I, I had huge triggers, big emotional outbursts, swings, And that took years to heal as well. And everyone would look at me and be like, oh, Jamie's fine. And I still had the cognition and the physical and that has no visibility. You can't see that at all. And so those were the big challenges of recovering
0: for me. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds fast as you describe it from the physical perspective and obviously five years, not fast at all from the, from the internal mental perspective, but how did you continually just get up every day? and just face what could have been perceived by you as an insurmountable challenge to get back up and to walk and to to talk and to be able to think the way you thought before, and even to ski? Like, how did you just get your mind straight to be able to do that each and every day?
1: Like I mentioned at the beginning, the physical stuff was easier for me to do because it, it did feel faster and it was very visible. And so then one of the things that helped me a lot My mom helped me out tremendously. And she did a lot of, so I would joke that I went to outpatient therapy five days a week for three hours. And then I did my mom's therapy seven days a week for seven hours. And the rest of the time I was sleeping. But my mom's therapy was even doing things like going hiking. And I couldn't hike by myself. I couldn't do anything by myself. So taking me hiking. And then when we started, I need to take a break every five minutes. And so that was really humiliating and depressing and made me feel really bad about myself that I couldn't hike for more than five minutes. And so she told me to change my articulation when I'm saying about it instead of I need to take a break every five minutes, tell the people I was with, let's look at the view. And every five minutes in Park City, there was an amazing view. And so I'd always say, Hey guys, let's stop and look at the view. And then I'd get what I wanted. I'd stop and rest my body and we would look at the view. And so it feels way different to say, let's look at the view instead of taking a break, even though they're the same thing. And so that became a metaphor and is part of the Mo crazy method, but has stayed with us forever is to when things get overwhelming and you're, you feel like you're tired and you need a break. So let's stop and look at the view and look at the view of your current life and what is currently positive about what's happening, because everybody has positive things in their life. Even if you feel super overwhelmed, there's going to be something good. Like there's been, that's been a big thing with COVID is that there's been a lot of positive things that have come from COVID. There's also a lot of challenges, lots of struggles. As a professional speaker, I can tell you that it's really hard to all of a sudden have a lot of your gigs gone and it's challenging but then you can focus on okay well i i got a dog during covid my little puppy luna well we adopted her from the pound and she was terrified of the world when we adopted her and now she's so cute and happy and wags her tail she i don't think she'd ever wagged her tail before we adopted her so anyways just look at the positive some opportunities that you can have of challenging situations which is that same concept of stop and look at the view
0: yeah. I, I love that in so many ways. I think it's, you face a challenge, you pause, which is always powerful. You're almost saying acknowledge where you are, the progress you have made, the fact that you can hike five minutes and think about the positives. Yeah. I mean, there were positives for me from COVID for sure. I mean, I think all of us had some hopeful silver lining despite some of the the obstacles and challenges that we all faced, but such a a powerful lesson in terms of just enjoying the view as you take that pause that take that breath.
1: Yeah. And there were so many times in my recovery for some years that I didn't really want to get up. Like there was one day that was my first year and I I remember lying in bed and my mom was off ski instructing and Jeannie was off training and I was like, no one would notice if I didn't get up, no one would care. But then I realized the person who would care was myself if I just lied in bed all day. I for everything I did, I I would care if I if I did it or not. So, I decided to get up and get on with my life and do things. And then one of the things that really helped with that was I went back to college. I went to a Westminster in Salt Lake and I went to college. And I think that's really powerful. So, even if i was 22 when i crashed so when i went back to college i was 23 so i was around college age even if you're in your 50s and you don't want to go back to college find a book club or take a couple of classes just do do something that may, gives you structure gives you a reason all of a sudden instead of no one would care if i wake up in the morning my teacher would care like i have to go to class so like find like find something outside of you that can force you to commit to like once a week going to a class or going to a book club reading the book or going to music do, doing something that you have to commit to doing once a week and you have to perform and and uh, it allows you to have more structure and accountability than just yourself for setting these goals because you'll have a teacher or a coach and that's actually something that we've started, we do with Mo Crazy Strong is my mom actually has, has been a coach for 30 years. She, she did the remote work before it was popular with COVID. And she had a federal grant from the government to teach self-esteem in Connecticut. And so she'd do that, some of it remotely, but some of it in person with different higher education programs. So she has been doing psychology work for 30 years and she does coaching on your psychology. And so then with Mo Crazy Strong, we do it specifically for brain injury survivors and family caregivers. And we actually get approached every week, sometimes multiple times a week. People will find us, reach out to us, and they want guidance and instruction and education. And just to be around people who had a successful recovery and learning steps like going I went to a hyperbaric chamber and I did back when I was in the coma I would have cranial sacral massage and we did a huge combination of eastern western medicine my older sister who's the doctor became my primary care physician um, when I was in the hospital in Vancouver so she would make the rounds with the doctors and she would really be in tune to the western ideology and then my other older sister and my mom would do a lot of the eastern and my mom's actually a PhD candidate for mind body wellness and so she's structuring all the the practices that she did in my recovery for that cuz honestly the reason why we're having an interview right now and we can talk and I can wave my hand this is my right side so I can I can I can just talk like this without even thinking about it is because a lot a lot because of the work that she did and the complementary Facets. So instead of saying like it's alternative medicine, no, for us it was not alternative. We never said no to the Western medicine that they wanted to provide me. We just would add in and complement it by different Eastern medicine. So it started back when I was in the hospital and they would put some fish oil in my feeding tube. So when I was in my feeding tube, they asked the doctors, Can we add fish oil to it? And the doctors said yes. And so they would add fish oil, which is good for your brain. It's been scientifically proven that it's good for your brain. However, in every situation, we can get all into healthcare, but they're not going to provide you with the fish oil. The doctors don't provide the fish oil unless you buy it and you give it to them in the bottle and then they can put it in. Um, But so that's complimentary type things. And then we also would do some all sorts of supplements. And so From my whole recovery process, I've been – for years, I I still take some brain medicine, like some supplements now that are powerful for for your brain and keeping it going. So complementary, Eastern, Western, different techniques, and going above and beyond – what was prescribed to me like doing things like there's been studies that show like the whole point of hyperbaric chambers for people who are diving is when they're coming out and the oxygen in their body they've been underground like so deep in the water that they don't have the oxygen so they go into the hyperbaric chamber and they're learning scientifically that what causes a lot of the brain damage is not having the correct amount of oxygen at the initial stages of the recovery, which is one of the things that the brain bolt was testing out in in my case. but my whole for years after, I had to I had to work on increasing my oxygen in my body.
0: You talk about your alternative peak, and I'm just curious during your recovery, was there a point where you said, you know, competitive skiing, that's no longer my, my primary focus. I'm going to shift to this alternative peak. Can you talk to me about what that process was like for you and just how you made that switch? Cause I think it's so hard for people just if they, they didn't achieve what they set out to where things change, whether it's a startup that didn't work out, whether it's a relationship, whether it was something else in, in business or in life and how they make that transition. Can you talk to me about your experience in terms of finding that alternative peak and then also how you help other people find theirs?
1: Yeah. I'd love to talk with you about that. I did decide on my own that I was not going to go back to competitive skiing and that I had to relearn every trick and I would have to fall. And it was not, I didn't want to put all my support at risk and I I decided not to. And it was hard. I'm I'm not going to say when you, when you are climbing on like a peak and you get caught in a metaphorical avalanche that slides you down to the bottom, your company that you've just, dedicated the last five years, all of a sudden one bankrupt, or your relationship is failing. I'm not going to tell you it's not hard because it is. I started going to psychology, uh, psychotherapy. Um, so that's what we usually think of when we say therapy, like for your mind, because I was so depressed and I was having so many emotional triggers for three years, I went to psychotherapy. And it was one of the best things I did, Um, but it's so, it was so challenging for me to have that happen and to come to grasp with it. And one of the things that really helped me continue going is kind of two things. One, you just have to kind of keep taking steps, no matter how many times you want to give up, you just have to keep going and doing different things that have nothing to do with what you're stepping away from. So like for me, I went that first winter, we thought it was a great idea for me to go to my little sister's competitions and I would just sob the whole time and it was not a good idea at all. So I had to step away. I didn't go to any competitions. I didn't have anything to do with competing. And I would try to find other things that I enjoyed doing, going back to college, like I mentioned, having other people to be accountable to Was important and making sure that I did some yoga and things that would make my body feel good about things and just keep going. That's the real thing is like you're gonna have days when you don't feel like it, and that's okay. That's one of the big things I learned in therapy was that if you're feeling sad, it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to have a bad day. Let it all out and then start to climb an alternative peak. So don't stay stuck at the bottom forever, but let yourself be like, okay, for the next, like, or like the rest of the day, I'm just gonna be sad and watch a movie that makes you cry or watch a show, read a book, do something, and then figure out how to start getting yourself out, doing something for fun, like maybe making a meal. I I love to cook, so making food or doing yoga or doing something that will help you bridge to start to climb just for fun, just something that will make you smile and be happy, like genuinely be happy. And then start thinking once you're feeling better, think about it rationally and be like, okay, so if this isn't working, how can we transition? How could we switch? If that didn't work, do we want to try something else? And so think of things in the future to do and Another big part of climbing alternative peaks is you never know the ultimate destination of where your peak's going to go up to where like, you know, so when you're climbing, it might be at the base and it might be, you might run into some dead ends and you might have to keep trying different things and just keep going and just keep climbing. And then you'll go out on some beautiful views and you'll feel successful and then you'll just keep climbing again. And so it's just a continuous process of taking steps along the path of life.
0: Yeah. I think there's so much wisdom in what you said. You know, one thing I think about a friend of mine who recently lost his job unexpectedly and, you know, he said, I just want to sit here on the couch for today. And I said, you know what, that's fine. Just be there, grieve, you know, live with it, I would say. And something you mentioned, too, is just like, it's okay to cry and watch a movie and be sad. I said, there's going to be people that immediately activate and start looking for jobs and polishing their resume. I said, they're going to eventually come back to where you are. So you might as well just accept where you are, live with it a little bit, grieve. And then I also learned about just taking steps, climbing up the mountain, Taking progress, you don't exactly know what that destination is going to be, but by taking forward steps, new opportunities are going to present themselves. That new alternative peak is going to is going to hopefully come in front of you. So, tell me about some of the things that you're working on with people in terms of helping them persevere, overcome traumatic brain injuries. Like, what are the things that Mo Crazy Strong is involved with?
1: Great. So, we're involved in a, a couple of different things. So, the nonprofit that portion is teaching brain injury survivors, and family caregivers, as well as the medical community, educating them, giving them opportunities, linking things together to help them create a version of Life 2.0 that they love about themselves and that they can accomplish things with. And then also to be able to fund all of that, <laughs> um, we are holding a Namaski which is a luxury ski yoga retreat, women focused, and it's March 24th to 27th. So you arrive Thursday night, you just have to take Friday off work and then Saturday and Sunday, and we'll be having some skiing with ski instructors. All different levels are invited. So beginners, intermediate, advanced, there'll be different groups. And so you can definitely fit right in. And so it's going to be a luxury retreat and the housings, the lodging is included at the Canyons Resort in Park City and foods included, massage. We're going to be making some jewelry with Kendra Scott. So it's going to be a really fun event. It it also kind of doubles as being a fundraiser for Mo Crazy Strong. So you'll get this luxury experience and then the profits that Mo Crazy Strong makes off of what we're delivering will be tax deductible for you and will be used so that we can continue to do one-on-one coaching or events for family caregivers and TBI survivors. Cause as my friend said, who's been giving us some nonprofit consulting is we kind of have the carriage is a little bit in front of the horse right now because we have been re we, we, get people who reach out to us, maybe someone who hears hears this will say, oh, I know this family who had this unexpected traumatic brain injury and they might need some advice and ways to, to overcome it. And so they'll reach out and then they'll contact us and then we'll provide help and give whatever is best for that situation, which is wonderful. And so as it is right now, we need the funds to be able to continue doing that. And so this event is one of the ways we're doing it. We also have it right now at mocrazystrong.com. That's our website and you can donate on the page right there. And so... So the concept of Mo Crazy Strong was actually started within 24 hours after my accident because my little sister, Jeannie, my nickname had been Mo Crazy and she wanted me to be strong again. So she started the hashtag Mo Crazy Strong to link all my supporters together because in the little world of skiing, I was a well-known figure. So I had international support and link it all together and the videos and everything social media style. So that's when the hashtag Mo Crazy Strong started. And then since then, we've been approached by different TBI survivors and family caregivers. And we talked with the doctor at Vancouver Journal Hospital. He opened it up to refer people to us. So we made sure that that's definitely legal and clear in the medical world for him to do that. Um, so he's been doing that. So we've been helping other families for a good six years now. And this is... Now we've just this year turned it into an official nonprofit and Jeannie and I, this is our full-time career. We're working on it and doing so many things behind the scenes all day, every day. So any support we can have to allow for the funding and raising awareness about traumatic brain injury and education to it, if you have any passion for that, any of our funding, any donations is greatly, greatly appreciated.
0: Fantastic. Well, Jamie, I really appreciate you sharing your inspiring story and also but telling about the really important work that you're doing through MoCasey Strong. So thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that the listeners all take something away from this, maybe setting attainable goals, maybe looking at the view, just take something away and add it into your life.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you're walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.